Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, oh, yeah, you can clap. You, yeah. I haven't even preached yet. Why are you clapping? No, just kidding, just kidding. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, my name is Tim Porter, one of the pastors here at Faith Community. Thank you so much for joining us for our, our fall kickoff, and thank you for the Hendersons for making it here uh, this morning. Uh, our youngest son is 16, and uh, it's been a long time since we've experienced something like what the Hendersons uh, experienced. Uh, and then it was even worse for my wife at times because I was here doing stuff. And so maybe you experienced what the Hendersons experienced this morning too, and thank you for being here and making the effort. It's really important to be together and worship together like this, and so it's good to be together. Thank you for the extra time you invested. And then also, I just want you to know online um, that right after their gathering this morning in our North Lawn, we're going to have a tent out there with uh, face painting and food and uh, jump houses, and then we're going to have, we're going to be broadcasting a, a, a football game. Not the football game, but a football game, like right after the service here. So no, okay, yay Vikings, okay, uh, may they lose. Okay, uh, but hey, come on down. <laughs> come on down and join us. I would love to have you uh, in person on campus for that. Now, you heard uh, Shannon mention in our welcome time, and hopefully you hear that almost every week, that we at Faith Community, we... We want to help everyone discover or find and live a gospel-inspired life. And I don't know about you, but maybe that phrase has just sort of rolled through your head and like, oh, okay, gospel-inspired life, cool. Okay, it's your church. That's what you're trying to do. And maybe, though, you've been someone who goes, what, what in the world do they mean by that? Like, what's a gospel-inspired life? What is that? How do you find it, and how do you live it? Uh, well, today, I'm going to seek to answer that question together. What is a gospel-inspired life? How do you discover it? And then, how do you live it out. Uh, what does that look like? And we're going to be learning from just a few short verses from the Gospel of John, John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 39 through 42 together. And so online and uh, in the room, if you want to join me in reading through this together, if you don't have your own Bible or an app on your phone for the Bible, uh, you can you can use one of the Bibles in front of you in the chairs. It's going to be found on page 889. And it's going to be John 4, 39 through 42. And if you're new with us this morning, just a special welcome from you, uh, to you. Uh, every week is not like this, but it's a special week for us. But I want you to know that every week, one of the things we do do is we do read the Bible together. Uh, and at the end of the Bible reading time, um, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And then all of us together are going to say, thanks be to God together. Okay. Just give you a lot of information. Are you ready to read? Okay, good. You're a little bit more livelier than the first service. Okay. They're like, are you guys ready? You're like, uh, ready for what? No. Okay, we're going to read the Bible together. Okay. John 4, 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, and the him there is Jesus, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever, ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, that is Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a little congregational uh, participation here, even after saying thanks be to God. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Okay, good. All right. So you probably went to the Grand Canyon the, sort of the same way I did, knowing that it's a really big hole in the ground. 
and that it's supposedly beautiful. You'd seen photographs of it and uh, about its immensity and uh, just the beauty of it. Um, and also some, maybe you heard other people describe the Grand Canyon, what it was like to go up to the edge. Well, we went to the Grand Canyon about eight years ago. And uh, we did, it was one of our best trips as a family, and we, it was a whirlwind trip. We went, we drove here to Colorado Springs, stayed there for a couple days, and went to Flagstaff, Arizona, stayed there a couple days, then drove and visited the Grand Canyon in an afternoon, like who does that? Uh, but that's what we did, and then we went to um, Arches National uh, Park, and then we went to Breckenridge and stayed there a few days. Then we spent a night in Iowa, thank God, it was only a night, and it was at dark. Um, <laughs> sorry, if you're from Iowa, we love you, so does Jesus, but it's better in Wisconsin. Okay. Um, and then we came home. So it was a whirlwind tour of the Southwest or Mid-Southwest kind of deal. And uh, I still remember driving up to the Grand Canyon. And the feeling that I had as we went to the Grand Canyon and we walked, we went to the South Rim and we walked up near it. Now my wife is afraid of heights and so she, as she got closer, the anxiety went up and both of us have a Seth in our life. And he was eight years old. And if you remember Seth about eight years ago, he was running all over the place and we wanted ropes and we wanted some kind of harness to keep him because he was going to go over the edge. That's what it felt like, okay? If you have little kids and you don't like heights and you go to the Grand Canyon, it's a terrifying experience. But it's also overwhelming with beauty. And it's, it's the immensity of it. I mean, how do you take it in? You can't take it all in. But in that moment, in that moment when we experienced the Grand Canyon for the first time, we made a shift. We believed because of what other people said that the Grand Canyon was beautiful, immense, and this massively big hole in the ground. And then we saw it. Then we experienced it. That's what it's like to discover Jesus in a gospel-inspired life. You move... You move from knowing about someone because you've heard about Jesus to knowing him. And that's what we see described in this passage. A little background here. This is a Samaritan village and Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And the reason why these Samaritans knew anything about Jesus whatsoever is because Jesus crossed all kinds of social and theological and doctrinal barriers to go meet with this one woman at a well at noontime. And he wanted to introduce himself to her and show who he was as the Messiah, as the King, as the greatest one who would quench all the thirsts of her heart. And so he has a conversation with her. It's a personal conversation. It's a doctrinal conversation. But it's also a convicting conversation because at some point in time in the conversation, Jesus says to her, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go back to your village and go get your husband. And it's at that moment that it got really real really quick because she says to Jesus, I, I'm not married. And he says, I know. You've had multiple husbands, and the man that you're with right now is not your husband either. And in that moment, she knew that Jesus knew everything about her, and he shouldn't because he just met her. He knew everything about her, and he knew her deepest, darkest secrets, her biggest shame, and he loved her, and he wanted a relationship with her. That 
statement even of what he did when he said, I know all about you, became the, the statement that she used when she went back to told her, tell her neighbors, come see this guy who told me everything I ever did. Now that's background. That's background. Now she does go and she does tell her villagers or the villagers and her neighbors and her friends, maybe some of the people that shamed her because they knew her history, she started to tell them about Jesus. And then Jesus, and they heard about Jesus from her and her experience with Jesus, and then they invited Jesus to stay with them for two days. They spent two days investigating, asking questions, seeing what he was like, seeing how he treated people, how did he talk to people. They investigated, investigated, investigated. Had him into, her, into their homes. And then they make this statement in verse 42. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Notice how their faith progressed. It moved from I, we believe in Jesus, we believed in Jesus because of what you told us about him. We believed in him, but now we really believe in him. We know him. We spent time with him. And we believe that he is the savior of the world. That shift is the most important shift that we can make as a human being. It's the difference between someone telling you about the sweetness of raw honey and you tasting it for yourself. It's the difference of going and going to a wine tasting party and you see all these cards with a description of this is what this wine is like. Oh, it's oaky, it's black cherry, whatever it is. And then you taste it yourself. And you can taste all the different flavors. So my question, one of my big questions, one of the big questions we ask here at Faith Community, do you know that difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus? The difference between hearing about his goodness and tasting that he is good. This is the progression of faith. This is what it looks like to own our own faith. This is what it looks like to be converted, actually. And the reason why this is so important, you're gonna, you've heard Tim Prince mention this a couple times, is that there is still such a thing in America, because we're post-Christian in a sense, of what's called a cultural Christian. If you go down south a little bit, Oklahoma, it's the big, it's the big buckle on the Bible belt. Christians that are cultural Christians. In other words, they do church things. They do Christian things. They know Christian answers to, question, to, to questions. But they haven't made the jump yet to knowing Jesus. Do you know the difference? It's one of the reasons why we talk about reading your Bible or coming to worship, applying the scriptures to your life, it's because we're trying to talk about what it looks like to own our own faith, not have somebody else believe for us and tell us what it's like, but that we're able to articulate, this is what Jesus is doing in my life right here, right now. Right here. Right now. Now, if you know that you know the difference in the sense of you've never tasted Jesus, you don't know that he's good, please, Come up and talk to me right after the service. Come to our prayer room. We would love to talk to you and introduce you to Jesus so that you can say with the Samaritans, I've heard you talk about Jesus and I believed in him in that way, but now I know him. But now I know him. 
Now, one of the reasons why we do what we do as a church to help everyone discover a gospel-inspired life is because we're trying to describe what Jesus has done in our lives. What, what, what he has done in our lives. Notice that the woman had a testimony. Verse 39. He told me all that I ever did. All that I ever did. She had a real interaction with the living Jesus that changed her life. Now the reason why this is so important is because one of the reasons why Christians, the top reason why Christians don't share Jesus with other people is because of fear. I mentioned this some time ago, maybe back in July, I think I was on a, an international call with Christian leaders from around the world. Like really, like one was in Scotland. And we were talking about, they were, I was, I was learning during this time, and they were talking about how when you talk to Christians around the world, the first answer that comes up as to why we don't share Jesus is afraid of rejection and afraid of being asked a question we can't answer. Ever feel that way? I did. I do. Right? Did you know that Jesus was asked a question he couldn't answer? You're in good company. Now to take the burden off is, is to take the burden off and to really understand what, what sharing Jesus is Sharing Jesus isn't, you have to have all the answers about who God might be to somebody else. That's not, the, that's not sharing Jesus. We share Jesus out of our experience. I've met him. I know him. This is what he's like. This is how he is working in my life right here, right now. This is what he's doing in my life right here, right now. This is why we're rallying. One of the reasons why we're rallying as a church to serve together, especially in the next generation. With Refuge, with Awana, with Faith Kids, with Faith Littles. While we're trying to teach them about who Jesus is from one generation to the next generation, talking about who God is. Why? So that one day, so that one day, a kid that was in Faith Kids, a kid that was learning verses in Awana, a student that was in a small group in refuge can look at a leader one day and said, I believed in Jesus because of what you said. But now I've met him, and I believe in him because I've met him. That's what we're serving for. So when Shannon talks, or I talk, and, and I let you know about serving opportunities, this is why we're serving for. It's not just to make the world a better place, which we want to do until Jesus returns but it's so that more and more and more people can hear about who Jesus is and they can personalize it. I've heard you say it, but now I know it for myself. That's discovery. That's what it looks like to discover a gospel-inspired life, that Jesus is the good news that we were waiting for. What does it mean to live it? Now, to, to live the gospel part, like I want to unpack a phrase here that's in this passage. It's a unique phrase, actually, in the Bible. You might think if you grew up in the church, you might think that the phrase Savior of the world is like said all over the place in the Bible, but it's actually only mentioned twice in the Bible. This phrase, Savior of the world, 
Mentioned twice, here on the lips of these Samaritans where they look at Jesus and say, you are the savior of the world. And then the author of this gospel wrote another letter that's in the Bible, 1 John, where Jesus is called the savior of the world. Now the Bible talks about savior all over the place and there is one other place where Jesus, uh, savior Jesus is mentioned. But this phrase, this title, it's a title that Jesus is the savior of the world. What does that mean? What does that mean? And how do we unpack that for living a gospel-inspired life? Great questions. I'm glad you asked. Thank you. (laughs) Now, at the very least, when it says that, when they say that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that Bible teaches that Jesus is the Savior of the world, at the very least, what that means is that the world needs saving. Now, if you're wondering about that, just check your Apple's newsfeed, please, today. And you'll see that the world needs saving. It's, we're in a mess. We always have been in a mess. So don't think that it's really bad now, and it used to be really good back then. It was just as bad back then, just not as technological. And nobody knew about it. It's always been a mess. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled, it's always been a mess. But the world, the world, that word, world, in the Bible is not so much talking about the globe, It's talking about the people of the world. Those of you who grew up in the 80s, maybe you remember the song, We Are the World, We Are the Children. You remember that song? Okay, some of you are trying to repress that. I'm sorry. Um, Yeah, so we are the world. We, human beings. That's what John's getting at. That's what they're getting at. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Not so much the globe, though he is that Savior for that. He's our Savior, a Savior for human beings. We need saving. Do you need persuading of that? The next time you go to an in-person bookstore, Barnes & Noble over in Woodbury, look at the self-help section. We need saving. Nobody's got it figured out. We need help. But even more, if we drill down a little bit more, it's not just that Jesus is a savior for every human being. It's that Jesus is savior who is sufficient and powerful enough and has done everything that needs for me, for you to be saved. Now, big picture, what the Bible says is that Jesus has come. He's come to be one of us, to be born as one of us, as a human being, to live the life that you and I are supposed to live, but we don't live. To die the death that you and I are supposed to die. We, we are to experience, because of our lives and what we've done in our lives, we're to experience God's wrath. That's what we've earned. But Jesus did that for us. But then he also rose again for us as well so that we can live a new life. In the future, when we die, we will go to be with Jesus and Jesus will return. He's gonna make everything new, so he is the savior of the world. Now that's the big picture. One of my fears and one of my concerns and one of my observations is that most of the time we operate day in, day out with thinking that Jesus is savior of the world in the macro level, like one day I'm gonna need him when I die. And I'm really grateful that he died for me and he rose again for me so that when I die, I can live, I can go into death confidently knowing that I will live again. That's really important. God be praised. But the phrase savior of the world and the reality of a relationship with Jesus who's a savior of the world is not simply that Jesus is my savior and the savior of the world someday in the future out there when I die. It's the day-to-day saving that I need. Do you know Jesus that way? Do you know Jesus that way? 
See, today and tomorrow and the next day before you die, you and I are looking for saviors all the time to help us. The other reason, or the other way in which this phrase, Savior of the world, the Savior of the world, functions, is when it says that Jesus is the Savior of the world, it means that there is no other Savior of the world. There is no other. Now, where this matters is that in the ancient time, there were other people, usually political leaders, Caesar, took on the title Savior of the world. I don't know if you knew that or not. Other gods and deities, Zeus, for example, People would say that he was the savior of the world. And so when it says that Jesus is the savior of the world, and what they're saying when Jesus is, when they say Jesus is the savior of the world, they're saying we're turning to Jesus for our saving, and we're turning away from every other savior that could be out there. They don't exist. They're false saviors. And you and I, day in and day out, are tempted by and give in to and trust false saviors all the time when Jesus is the Savior of the world. You might be going, wait a second, I don't really do that. Let me give you some examples. And this is where the, this is where the rubber hits the road in the sense of living a gospel-inspired life. Husband and wife, are in, they're, they're starting to become fearful and bitterness is starting to grow in their relationship because their hopes and dreams and being married for a really long time and having a blissful life are starting to crumble around them. Her wife starts to get fearful over what her husband is doing and saying and so she starts to lash out and she starts to lash out in verbal abuse to her husband. Starts to say demeaning, harmful, horrific things to him. Calling him all kinds of names. Husband with pain and hearing these words and feeling diminished and feeling shamed and feeling fear over, feeling fear over what this is going to mean for them and their relationship starts to do the same back. Now we could step back and say that's verbal abuse and it is. And it's harmful to each individual and it is. And this isn't over-spiritualizing, this is trying to connect the dots. There's also saviors that are being trusted in that moment. False saviors. See, whenever you and I experience trouble, whenever we're afraid, whenever we're angry, we've got a choice as to who's going to, who or what's going to do our saving. And in that moment, that husband and wife, in that moment, are trusting another savior. Who's that savior? Themselves. If I verbally lash out at somebody, what I think I can do is in that moment, I can change somebody. I can control somebody else's behavior by shaming them, demeaning them, and turning them, and, and putting them down. Who's the savior then? Me. That's what the Bible wants us to look at, is that there's all different kinds of saviors that are out there. Every human being is trusting in some kind of savior all the time. The question is, is Jesus the savior of the world? Is Jesus the savior of the world for me right here, right now, in this moment? And whenever you and I trust another savior, it always brings destruction into our own souls and into the relationships of those around us. Jesus is the only savior. When we trust him, will not destroy us. He'll destroy the strongholds. 
but he won't destroy us, he'll give us life. I've mentioned this a couple times. I can't remember if I've mentioned this in a worship gathering or not, but COVID-19, not the disease itself, but all the different things that happened with the pandemic nearly killed me. A friend of mine last year at a, a middle son's graduation party, I haven't seen him in some while, he walked up to my driveway and he looked at my white beard and he's like, wow, you would think you're older than I am. And he's like in his 60s and retired. I'm like, yeah, this is what leading a church in a pandemic will do to you. But the pandemic actually wasn't what almost destroyed me. It was actually how I responded to the pandemic. See, I responded with worry. With worry. Now, there's a lot of reasons, you know, biologically, you know, if you're, biologically, you can experience anxiety, the feeling of anxiety, just because your body's going through changes. There's a lot of different ways, and, and, and you can experience worry when you're just going into a new situation, you don't know what it is. But there's also another way in which you and I worry that's actually functionally saving us, or we think it is. This is what Jesus picks up on in Matthew 25, or Matthew 6. He says this, which of you by being anxious or worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? What does he mean by that? What he means is that you and I can try to control the future, by worrying about it. Can I get an amen? <laughs> right? And what I did is I tried to worry and worry. And I tried to control the future by worry, 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 worry. My wife would ask me a question. I'm thinking about how we're going to lead through this, how we're going to survive. I never envisioned that we'd be having a big kickoff time a couple years after this pandemic. I was worrying, 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 and it almost destroyed me personally, physically, and it brought pain into my closest relationships because I was trying to control the future by worrying. Worrying was my savior. And Jesus, Jesus says to me instead, like, so, for example, in Matthew 6, Jesus says to me and said, hey, worry can't do anything to you. It's a functional savior that will destroy you. You can't, it doesn't help you at all. But Jesus introduces us to the good news of who God really is when he's talking about worry. My father, he says, my father, he loves you. He cares about every personal detail of every aspect of your life. Look at the birds and see how the birds are fed. They don't, they, don't, they don't move around. They don't work. They don't store in barns, and he feeds them all the time. Look at the flowers of the field. They're beautiful. Nobody's been dressed like the flowers of the field except maybe Solomon. And they rise up for a moment, and then they're you know, cut away and burned. And my father cares more about you, more about you, than he cares about the flowers of the field. That's the good news. That kind of good news gets you out of worry. And that kind of good news gets you to start loving people instead of just being focused on what's going on. Now, you and I can't do what the Samaritans did. Jesus isn't here bodily anymore. But he's still alive. And he still can be known. And he still can be met. And Jesus says that where we can meet him most often is in Christ-centered community. Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am 
with you. This is why we emphasize missional communities so much at Faith Community. Is gathering together with other Christians where we're sharing our lives. We're learning how to share our lives with one another. We're learning how to share what Jesus is doing in my life and on our lives with one another so that we're learning Jesus together. We're walking together because Jesus shows up in the middle of Christ-centered community. Now here at Faith Community, we are seeking to develop and train and resource and support all kinds of missional community leaders. And their charge is to do this, to drive as much as they can under the leadership of the Spirit to provide an inviting, open, welcoming, and Christ-centered community that's dedicated, that's dedicated to making more and better disciples of Jesus. We've got missional communities that are meeting all around, and some of them have met through the summer, as you heard about in the video. Some of them are just restarting right now. If you want to know more about how to join a missional community, Pastor Tim Prince will be in our, in our ministry booth, and you can talk to him about that before you head out and enjoy some of the festivities. But one of the things I want to mention about missional communities, that is, a community becomes a community not just because the leaders are trained and supported and trying to organize and stuff like that. A community becomes a community when at least one person, at least one person, starts to become vulnerable and clear about how they need Jesus in real time in their life and what their other potential saviors are that they're trying to turn away from. You heard Sydney say, I'm so thankful. Sydney, I don't know if you're in the room. Uh, thankful for your willingness uh, to be vulnerable and let us share that video. Praise God, six months. I know that was when that shot, six months of sobriety. But you notice what, what Sydney said. The missional community is a place to become vulnerable. And vulnerability is hard for us in the upper Midwest. But vulnerability is the key to helping a community start to really function and really, you really start to change. I saw the power of this for the first time as a junior in college. I had a good friend, really good friend. We had done a lot of different things together. He he and I, I played football, he played basketball, he was 6'10", he was this giant guy. He was super wicked smart. He double majored in biology and Bible and theology. He got me through my my, my first year of Greek class. And we spent a lot of time talking about the Bible together, talking about the Bible together, and learning together and encouraging one another and just being friends together and doing dumb things in college. But then the campus pastor got a bunch of us together. He saw us as emerging leaders. He got a bunch of us together, and he started to work with us and mentor us. And one day, um, I, can tell, I can show you where it was. We were in a room together, and there was about, I don't know, maybe 12 of us. We were in there, campus pastor, my best friend, one of my best friends, and then me and these other guys. And we were talking talking about life, and it was sort of on the surface level. And then my friend, and I never expected he would say something like this before, or never expected that he would say something like this. He just paused in the midst of it, and he just said, I am struggling significantly with pornography. Now, looking from the outside, I would have never thought, and he never told me that ever. I would have never thought, like, what, you, really? And then what happened in that moment, see, pornography is, a, it's a, pornography is another kind of savior. 
Trying to get comfort and intimacy in an impersonal way without any risk for a relationship. And it destroys you. But in that moment, when he said that to a person in the room, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. And it got to me. Yeah, me too. At some point in time, now I'm not saying if you go to a missional community today, you need to tell somebody your deepest, darkest secret, okay? But what I am saying is that at some point in time, for the missional community to become a community, you need to share. What are the other saviors that you're tempted to go to aside from Jesus and ask for help to know more about Jesus so that you don't go to them but you live a gospel-inspired life? Small group, tell a leader, tell somebody that you trust. That's what helps a community become a community when we start getting honest with where we are with Jesus real time, right here, right now. And we're going to close out our service this morning by singing a song together called I Speak Jesus. It's a powerful song, really important song, because we want to be a people as a Christ-centered community that speak Jesus to one another. And not just walk around going, hey, Jesus, 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 Jesus. But the idea is that you and I are applying Jesus as the Savior of the world to the saving you and I need right here, right now to our own lives. And so we need, I need, I need people in my life to speak Jesus to me so that I continue to turn to Jesus. And you need people to speak Jesus to you so that you keep turning to Jesus. Because we've got all kinds of other functional saviors out there that will destroy us. But he's come to give us life and give it life abundantly. So I want to ask you, if you would, to stand. I'm going to pray for us as we promise and we sing about the power of speaking Jesus into our lives and into this world. Father, thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your kindness, your steadfast love, your persistence. Thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to come and be one of us, to suffer with us, along with us, as one of us, to die to absorb the wrath that we deserve. You took that on so that we could experience life. Spirit, Holy Spirit, thank you for your willingness to come and be in our lives, in our very being, in our heart of hearts, all because of what Jesus has done. And you speak to us, you speak the name of Jesus, and we want to speak it as well. Speak it to our hearts, Help us to speak it to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.